0: She lies on her side in last night's clothes. There's sweat and smoke informing her sleep. One arm draws her knees to her chest. The other falls limp over the couch's edge in a dead reach. Not fucked but still drunk, Eva rides a bottle off to work. Days melt together. The sun never fully sets or rises. There is a sleeping box, a working box, and a box that moves between. Every day, the 10-minute walk to the train along the shortest route, crossing when possible in diagonals, the same fat woman walking the same fat dogs. The house is cramped in rows, some stinky lady riding the train until her nod wears off. Sometimes there's a stranger who wants to talk or eat her alive or touch her under her clothes. She makes fists and shifts in the hard plastic seat imagines the street cracked like an egg, exposing the molten yolk of the earth against which the cars appear in their peaceful plummet, small as salt crystals. Don't think it. The brain is an asshole. It is an engine begging to be derailed. Hello and good morning, I'm Douglas Bowles and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42Minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42Minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. We've come to the end of another National Poetry Month, but we're not going to go quietly or gently on this 29th day of April for episode number 134.
1: That's right. Old age should burn and rain at the close of the day. We want to drink the water from the river. We want the stories they buried and the elders they weren't. Hello, William Morgan here. Today on 42 Minutes, we are speaking with poet and essayist Lisa Wells. She is the author of the chapbook, Beast, published by... Bedonian Books, is that correct? Bedouin. Bedouin Books, 2012. <laughs> and yes, no, totally. A book of essays published in 2011 uh, 11 by Perfect Day Publishing. You can find more information at lisawellswriter.wordpress.com. We're very pleased to be speaking with her today. Hello, and thank you so much for uh, spending 42 minutes with us. Hi, guys. Thanks for
0: having me. <laughs> you bet. You bet. There's a number of directions we could go to start into this, and I'm I'm. There's a, a bunch of paths I'm curious about, but I think it's going to all end up at the same place. But when I first contacted you, you were working on a thesis. Is this the thesis? <laughs> 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 um.
2: Well, I don't know what I don't know what the thesis is, but it is. I suppose it is the thesis for me. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I actually just submitted it to the University of Iowa, where I'm at, in graduate school, um, last week. And so there it
0: is. Yeah. Do, do writers have to defend their thesis? How does that process work? Um, I, my wife just uh, went through an MFA process in painting, and so that was pretty heavy, where she creates a body of work and then creates a thesis to, to, to define the terms of her body of work, and then... After that, uh, she hangs the body of work and then the whole graduate college comes and criticizes.
2: The <laughs> Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, while I feel I feel roundly criticized after my two years at the workshop, but uh, we, in fact, have almost no sort of formal, um, you know, formal expectations. So. Really, you just have to format it for the graduate college. In terms of the workshop, faculty, I mean, they, they read it and they give you feedback, but you don't have to defend it to them. Thank God. Um,
0: and as a writer, yeah. you have definitely a, a really poetic voice in both your essays and obviously your poetry, but which direction did you end up going there at the writer's workshop? Oh, thanks. Do you have to choose?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in the poetry poetry track, so I'll have an MFA in poetry. And they don't actually do nonfiction at the workshop. There's a really wonderful nonfiction program through the English department here,
0: but they're separate. Yeah. And as we were talking a little bit before, uh, you came, you grew up in Portland, but then, what? I mean, what kind of change was that moving to Iowa City?
2: Well, it's sort of a it's a weird thing to do. I think when you're, you know around 30, which is how old I was when I came out here uh, to leave your community. I had have, I have like a wonderful community in Portland and um, not to beat a dead horse, I feel like I always talk about that, but it really, I was totally happy there. But I just, you know, I've been in the service industry my whole life and um, had been a high school dropout, which is fine. I don't have any regrets about that. Um, and it's not like, I, I'm not trying to frame this like I've suddenly made good, but really what I wanted was to buy myself a little bit of time uh, so in that way, it's been a, a big gift, but I, I definitely don't relish having left that community. Not that there aren't great people here, but, you know, it's sort of a transient thing.
0: Okay, so let's talk about Portland then. So that's kind of one of the centers of this conversation, I think. But at one point in time, you're writing about how Portland was over, <laughs> You know, it, it had lost its authenticity because everyone decided that Portland was the new it. And maybe this is like, I don't know, what do you think, 2007, 2009, somewhere in that neighborhood? Maybe 2010? When the book came out? Well, the, yeah, the book came out in 2011, but I'm wondering, you were writing those essays about Portland. When yeah. do, do you think? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, 2010.
0: I'm just um, curious what you yeah. how you feel about Portland now, because it seems like we're in a much different world from the time this book came out, especially with a show like Portlandia out in the world, too.
2: Right. Yeah, that definitely sort of upped the ante. I think, you know, I mean, it's a weird... Most of the people I knew when they were leaving high school sort of... I mean, a lot of people left because... Portland, you know, when I was growing up, was a very different city, and there wasn't a lot of, it was sort of a depressed city, Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it wasn't like, it wasn't the best, it's not really where you wanted to spend your 20s, but right when I was entering my 20s is when there was sort of a cultural renaissance there, and um, good restaurants to eat at started opening up, so it hit the sweet spot, I think, and, and I was really happy for the initial wave of of people moving in, but like anything, uh, you know, I guess that can't last. So now I think the really difficult thing is that a lot of the people that I, long-term residents and, and people I grew up with can't really afford to live in their own city anymore, which is a weird experience. I mean, plenty of people have felt similarly colonized in other places, but you it's hard not to take it personally when it happens to your town, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say about authenticity, except that, I mean, yeah. Like I'm sort of, I'm being a, I'm, I'm, I'm being a provocateur in in those essays for sure. Like I think, you know, there was a a lot of great things came out of people moving to Portland and and whatever, bringing their, you know, their
0: Lifestyles with them, but just from my point of view, living in the Pacific Northwest, but not close, I mean, it, it did seem like you know the 90s were something that became something else in the early aughts, and then it just seems like it's a much different world now, though, as far as
2: yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, so it's really easy to make fun of the funny things that people do in Portland these days, but then if you were going to dream up a new world and a new way of living, you know, you would have to do things different than everyone else.
2: I think what, I think maybe the grossest part of what's happened there is this, I mean, it happened to all of, I feel like this is what happened to indie culture, you know, it got kind of slick or something and commercial. Um, like, which isn't, I guess, you know, I'm not, I'm not 16 raising my fist in the way that I used to, but I think like, you know, a lot of these restaurants that are opening are $18 a plate. And, um, obviously I like organic food, but, um, like, I don't know, I don't know. There seems to be some disconnect between like what made the city attractive to live in and sort of what the lifestyle that's now, Kind of being presented, you know. I mean, it's classic—the woes of gentrification. You know, whole neighborhoods basically gone in five years, and um, you know, the rents are doubling, and yeah.
1: Hmm. Oh, good. We got we got to switch gears, man. So uh, <laughs> tell me tell me more about Beast. What what is sure? Beast?
2: What do you? Oh, it's a chapbook of of poems. Um, that
1: came out in 2012. Mostly, uh, Elegies. Is that just one, the name of one of the, the oh, poems yeah, within? So that, Where did the name come yeah, from? Yeah, I
2: think it, I yeah, I think it fairly encapsulates its themes, but there is a poem in that, in that book called Beast, that's sort of a, it's an elegy for, uh, a friend of mine who committed suicide a few years ago, or died by suicide, I should say. Um, and, there's a lot of lines in the book um, that reference this sort of beast-like quality, like the feeling of being mad with grief, um, and you know, just be, like being blinded by grief and lashing out, you know, I don't know, in a beastly way.
0: There is kind of this sadness undercurrent in in a lot of your writing. I, I recognize. Is that what inspires you, do you think, or is it just that you've experienced a lot of life, I guess?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the question, I guess. I mean, I keep I keep <laughs> sort of waiting to <laughs> to metabolize this stuff and uh, you know, I keep waiting to write my comedic like
1: breakthrough, I don't know, <laughs>
2: inspirational breakthrough. Yeah, but uh I don't know. I think And some of it is, a. I just, you know, I, I, it's not that I reject the optimistic spin. I just, uh, it just has never, it's never been something I've been able to convincingly pull off. So, you know, what I'm left with is sort of a classic lower middle class cultural experience where, you know, like we were poor people around me, all the adults around me and a lot of my friends were addicts and, um, a lot of people died you know. a lot of the kids I grew up with died. So that's yeah. just a part of my experience. And I don't know that it really does anybody any good to give it much polish and shine. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, it's also, it's just life, you know? Uh, yeah. So, am I sad? A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> a little <laughs> bit, but not just for people, you know, I think this is like another thing I talk about in, that, in the Yenotoli book is this experience of having been really um, connected to the natural world, and that having been a big part of my uh, growing up, and and having witnessed you know places that I cared about, like people being demolished. Um, so I think I had it was like I was a natural candidate for like you know preparing for the apocalypse or whatever. And in fact, when I left high school, I went to wilderness survival school to ju- to do that, you know. <laughs>
1: We ask this question here often, um, but are you pessimistic or optimistic for the future of you know, humanity?
2: I am, uh, well, I don't think industrial civilization is going to last, nor do I necessarily think it should, um, but I am optimistic about certain things. Like there's this woman, I just finished an article uh, essay for the Believer magazine about who's her name is Phoenicia Medrano, and she's a kind of like a nomadic hunter-gatherer living in the Great Basin. So actually, comes through your area sometimes, both of your areas, I think.
3: Yeah.
2: And she's been, you know, for like 30 years, she was single-handedly living out there um, replanting these old wild edible roots that used to carpet the Great Basin um, that were these, you know, elaborate, wild edible food gardens that were maintained by the tribes in those areas. And they actually require human hands to thrive. So, um, you know, after the occupation and disease and, you know, the genocide that was committed against Native America happened and people were forced onto reservations, a lot of those gardens kind of, you know, just became neglected. And Phanesia's been out there trying to replant, um all of those gardens and has been living off of them. Really cool lady. So when I hear about stories like that, I'm like, okay, well, this is talking about reciprocal um, land management practices that actually replenish the earth and um, rather than destroy it. So that seems like a really simple thing to pin hopes on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like we got a similar, (laughs) a similar answer out of, uh, Douglas Rushkoff, where he doesn't have much hope for humanity in general, but then there is those individual hopeful stories that life will find a way.
2: Right. Well, that's the beauty of the seed. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things coming up in, you know, these wilderness survival worlds, um, one of the things people talk about a lot is, you know, preserving the seeds of indigenosity, Right. And it's, like, treated like a metaphor, but people aren't really considering the cultivation of literal seeds. And I think, you know, that's, that's something that maybe is worth paying attention to. Like, um, how can we literally uh, create in the midst of destruction? And seeds are perfect because once they're planted, they can wait underground and they can't be stopped once they start coming, you know? Reminds me a little bit of that scene in, have you guys seen Princess Mononoke? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a scene in that cartoon where, that movie where, um, I forget what her name is, but she's like one of the city dwellers. She's shooting at these creatures that are replanting the forest. And um, that's a little bit like, you know, my experience with Phenicia, like she just, she keeps coming and she keeps replanting. And I'm sure there are others like her like you can't really you can't stop it (laughs) that's kind of a thrilling prospect so what do you guys think are you uh, are you pessimistic optimistic
0: I don't have any any... (laughs) (laughs) I mean most days I'm definitely pessimistic because it doesn't seem like uh, the way we live is in balance with anything or the way we like just the economic system of this country is ridiculous And it it seems like we all end up kind of playing that game of uh, credit and betting on, you know, hoping that tomorrow's going to be better and so we'll spend a ton today.
1: Now, if you're asking me, I don't know. I think that this is a big pile of evolution. I think think the planet, you know, the planet... Creates people. That's what it does. That's like everybody talks about people being such a disease and everything. And I, I don't know. I just think that that's it's it's not. It's there's some kind of plan going on. The more we deal and talk to people about synchronicity, the more there seems to be some kind of work towards being led to a certain outcome, and that gives me hope. Speaking of which, I mean, what what do you know about synchronicity? Is it a big thing in your life, or do you think people like us are just a bunch of weirdos?
2: Well, why don't you describe... I, I guess I don't know enough about what your interest in synchronicity is.
0: I, I suppose our interest, are usually, is the idea that most artists have an intuitive process, and they don't need to name it anything. They just are doing their work. But it's not something... That is Even though it is intentional, it's not necessarily consciously intentional, that they're doing some unconscious work and assembling things, and somehow they find the things they need to find to put the thing together that they're constructing. (laughs)
1: You're horrible at this sometimes, Douglas. Mm. (laughs) I'm picking on you, because it's hard to talk about, but because like Douglas, you said before, it's almost talking about talking, but there seems to be some sort of play with meaning. (laughs) Synchronicity all has to do with playing with the meaning of something, two things that are not caused by the same thing, but you as the observer create some meaning. Like, they have some meaning that they happen together. Do you know what I'm saying? And sometimes when we talk to artists and they make their art, they seem to not be aware of the meaning until way after the production It's definitely not during sure. the actual act that they are conscious of exactly what they are creating it has more meaning for them yeah. later mm-hmm. but synchronicity a, a good way of saying it is like say that you know you've spent this whole day and that you've had these you you had these experience with pigeons just to be completely random about it this whole day you see. You, you ate at a restaurant that had the sign of a pigeon, there, a pigeon pooped on you or something, and then you go to this art gallery, and there's this gigantic painting of a pigeon, and that has a certain amount of meaning for you, and then you go into what the symbol of the pigeon means, and it seems that work is some kind of catalyst for you to open up this mental energy. Um, and there's quite a few of us who live this way where, like, there's an overabundance of meaning being shed and whatever activity we're doing for that day. It gives you a mystery of, like, how is this possible? Is it all in your head?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. So you're asking...
1: Um, is this, uh, if, like, have this you ever... This is my experience? Yeah. I mean, have you ever had a poem that had a lot more meaning to you after you wrote it that was...
2: Okay, well, so here's yeah, I mean, I can answer this question because I feel like those are two I'm not saying two different things, but they're two two ideas so one, yes, I would say that my experience of making art is largely like by feeling, and then um, yes, I understand far more about the work once I've completed it. I think most people would say that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like walking around in the world and sensing, um, you know, some kind of pattern. You know, I think like my public self would say I, that that's it's just constructed by consciousness. It's like a choice to to derive meaning from the pigeon, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, honestly, I think, I mean, if I'm going to be honest with you, yeah, I do walk around the world like that. I do. I think when I was younger, I was way more compelled by it. Like, I didn't really perceive my own, uh, I didn't feel like I had much agency in it, which I think is a dangerous...
0: Which is a really important point, I think, that that dance between... Yeah, well, this is what Phoenicia
2: would say is, like, She's always like, "Oh, the devil's writing writing the script." Like I have her on the mind because I just finished this essay, but you know, she believes that that you know there is a script that's being written, and it just depends on sort
0: of who's in charge of
2: the creative direction, and you can you can act on it, you can act upon it, um,
0: yeah. One of our guests that we we've really enjoyed speaking with is this professor of religion from. Oh,
1: Rice University.
0: There we go. And uh, Dr. Cri- uh, Jeffrey Kripel, but he has this theory about how he studied comic books and how uh, the characters go through this process of realization.
1: Realization that they're, they're in, in a, in a story, story.
0: And then they have to authorize their own story, which is really. Become the
1: author of your own story is the concept.
0: Which is all about agency, where at the same time that you're being written, you also need to realize that you're going to end up. Becoming the writer, if you become fully realized, sure, which is fascinating to me. <laughs> uh, let's talk about. So the thing that I'm thinking about is you're perched kind of in between two worlds in my mind. How you really uh, started experiencing culture at a, at a young age, and so yeah. when I read, yeah, no, totally, which kind of reflects more of a millennial paradigm in that you're it's it's not so binary it's and you know it's not and or it is and both kind of yeah no totally it's it's everything together but mm-hmm. the gen x paradigm was more i would say snarky you know yeah. it, its voice was definitely like when i moved to seattle in 2000 the stranger hated everything and you had to kind of get. Oh yeah. <laughs> you had to figure out by gradation whether or not you wanted to invest into something by how much they hated it, which was yeah. fun. Which was fun, but it does seem like now, it's a it's a different it's a different world. So you have uh, someone like Ezra Koenig on the Brett, S-L, uh, Brett Easton Ellis podcast, you know, trying yeah. to, and it just seems like those are two worlds that are in conflict because you know Brett Easton Ellis a writer is saying of the millennials you know their generation wuss <laughs> and then oh, yeah. Ezra Koenig is more like you know there's just no place for hate you know you just know that you can do it and you do it that you know it's kind of this positive youthful yeah. how, how do you feel about your place kind of so in, I'm I'm thinking about this because your voice has kind of in, yeah, no, totally, a bit of this kind of snarkiness. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you're definitely a voice of uh, the, the newer generation.
2: Well, I, yeah, I do feel, you know, to go back to the first thought, I do feel sort of perched between Gen X and the millennials, I guess, Um uh, yeah, I was consuming culture, that culture, that indie culture, pretty young, and I had a lot of older pals, and I had an older sister, so I think, uh, I mean, I worshipped those, you know, like nineties culture for sure, indie culture. So, well,
0: who was the musical guest at your birthday party, your thirteenth birthday party? Slater Kinney. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, they were. I think they were still at Evergreen. It was before Janet Weiss was in the band. It was, uh, huh. yeah, they were young. They must have been 19 or 20.
0: It's so funny because, like, uh, much of our audience probably doesn't even know who Slater Kinney is. But if you said uh, Carrie Brownstein, maybe Steen. Right,
2: yeah. Yeah, Some yeah, she was in that band.
0: Portlandia, they are like, oh, yeah, I know her. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the whole DIY thing uh, was huge and, you know. Really missed, I think. But you know, there's no. It's hard to like. It's hard to feel nostalgic for these little cultural anomalies. Post. I mean, whatever. Like, how do we even talk about this stuff now that we have? We all have computers and smartphones. Like, I
3: have these <laughs>
2: students. I have these students who make zines. Um, in Brooklyn, really awesome chicks. Like, uh, really. Into Kathleen Hanna and the Riot Girl thing, and you know, which it seems to me like probably if, if I had been into hippie culture or something, right? I mean, it's twenty years ago now, right? So it seems more like um, mostly a nostalgia thing. Anyway, but I'm kind of off topic, so you know, about the snarkiness. <laughs> snark- I, <laughs> I think you know what things we talk about one of the phrases that gets thrown around workshop when we're talking about poems is, you know, this idea that irony or self laceration or cynicism can protect you from sentimentality, right? Because nobody will stomach sentimentality. Uh And I think that was sort of my, you know, I don't know that I need to rely on that so much anymore, but when I was 26 and writing that book, I think, you know, the fact is that, Really like the thrust of, of those essays is I'm sort of a sensitive person and I'm mourning the loss of these things, right? Um, but how do you talk about it without just sounding like a fucking sap?
0: Uh, <laughs> and Do you think the millennials sound like saps these days?
2: No, I don't I don't I don't think I've formed any opinion about you know, the millennials. I yeah. don't really Yeah, I don't know that we can Yeah, I'm definitely not one of these older people who's shaking my fist at young people. I've always preferred young people. I don't like
1: like skinny jeans, but that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you pick your battles, you know?
2: (laughs) I mean, I feel sorry for them, honestly. It's like...
1: They won't I'm experience so the same I... rush of culture that we got. It was like the 90s was the last decade. I call them decades. There's like, you know, there's a certain look to the 50s, a certain look to the 70s, 60s, a certain look to the 80s. 90s seems to be the almost, it was like grunge. It was almost the antithesis of all that. It was almost a rebellion against that. Like all this produced nonsense, let's, you know, do it ourselves. And then... Then it was like the computer age, and now we're just all hanging out here in limbo where there's like i don't know no right. there's there right. it's so much there's no there's no definitive culture it's just a saturation of all culture do you know what i mean there's no there's no definitive like look like there was in the nineties or you know the grunge thing that was in the nineties or the eighties new wave thing
2: yeah
1: I'm, I'm ranting
2: i know i mean I, that's often my imp- that's my impression too, but I kind of. You know i I sort of reserve the right to you know, like I don't know, I just feel like we we never it's hard to look at it when you're in it, you yeah, know? like who knows how we're gonna look back on this i what I was gonna say is I feel sorry for these these kids for not having had like some of my students, I poll them and ask them like what their relationship to technology has been. You know, like, when did they first start having devices? And for a lot of them, it was, you know, as long, as, like, as far back as they can remember, you mm-hmm. know. Or my nephews, um, you know, since they were little tiny kids, they've had these, you know, little gaming systems always on hand. And they have cell phones and shit. And it's just, I don't know, to me, that's really kind of a tragedy. And they've been sort of an experimental They're like a control group in a way because we don't really know what this is doing to people.
3: I mean, there's some (laughs)
2: studies that suggest, and I can't cite them offhand, I'm sorry, but that it's fundamentally changing the way that our brains develop, and that's kind of freaky.
1: Yeah, I tell, like, my kids this, though, and they just look at me like I'm boring. Like, I tell them they need to go outside and be like, (laughs) get off the tablets. They, I don't think they realize, like, the worries that we have about that generation being, you know, at the touch of the button. They have everything that they need. We don't even know what it's going to do to the economy, though, yet. Yeah.
3: We're in, we we're are good
1: territory. I have one who's 11 and one who is 6. And the 11-year-old, I think, is the one because... You know, every single person she knows has uh, a smartphone. But at the same time, I was like, what do you need the smartphone for? Like, what do they need Facebook for? The reason we have Facebook is to go back and find all these old friends that we don't see anymore. You see all of your friends every freaking day. Like, <laughs> what do you need? Uh-huh, to talk- yeah. Oh, my goodness.
0: All right, so I'll take it a, a different tangent. So... I'm curious if you've ever read any Douglas Copeland.
2: Wow, that sounds familiar. No, I definitely haven't, but
0: who is that? He's the one who coined Gen X. So he wrote Generation X. Oh. And I think mm-hmm. it came out in 91. And it was a really big book for me just because it seemed like he was speaking with characters that seemed like, you know, I wanted them to be part of my life, like somehow they were speaking to me. Um, But it's interesting because at the same time I'm reading your work, I'm also reading Dave Eggers' The Circle, which is kind of talking about our moment now, which is that the notion of a life that's not really a life, that it's the virtual life. Douglas Copeland also wrote a book called Microsurfs that was detailing the early, early uh, internet culture at Microsoft, so the coders who were inventing the world that we now inhabit. Right. but he his work is also really informed by the, the environment of the Pacific Northwest, and so you're in these rainforests, and the people are, you know, they're inhabiting both this, uh, indust not industrial technological world, but then unplugging and going into the kind of world that you spoke about in um, the essay about your childhood campground. You know, where here's a right. world that literally doesn't exist anymore as you as you wrote about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know, if this is probably a little bit tangential, but I think, you know, if you make a habit of kind of patrolling yourself for, you know, how you interact with your computer and, and phone, it can be pretty... I don't know, I'm often disturbed, and sometimes I just decide not to pay attention to these things. Like, for example you know, how long can I sit relatively, I mean, like, if, if one ever needed to practice meditation, now is the time, right? Because, like, I find I'm, I'm constantly sort of aware of, it's like a leash, you know, I know, I know where it is, and I, I check it at regular intervals and experience like a sense of, you know, it's like when I used to smoke, I sort of had an internal timer that would just, you know, let me know that it was time to go outside and have a cigarette. And I feel like that's been replaced with the the checking of the apps. And, uh, you know, I'm not, it's not really a value judgment. It's just like, I'm aware of the fact that I'm incapable of being fully present because I have an awareness of of this thing at all times, you know?
0: Totally. Would you like to read us a poem? We'd love that. Uh, Sure. Yeah. Wonderful.
2: You want to, do you want me to read you a poem by someone
0: else or by me? How about whatever you prefer? Okay. To make this uh. moment more for fully present for everyone.
2: <laughs> okay, let's see. I'm pulling up my thesis. How about, since we're being nostalgic altogether, I'll, I'll read a poem called 1989. Nice. Sure. Which is about <clears throat> things that happened that year, and since poetry is not. Immediately accessible to all people, I'll go ahead and give you some of the narrative, which is that in this year, I was struck by a car, and I also had my head stuck in the bars at the lion cage, um, in the lion cage at the zoo. So, like, I wanted to get a closer look.
0: What? How old were you? <laughs> yeah.
2: I think I, was, I, I would have been seven.
0: Wow. So it, was oh, wow. Sort of a,
2: it was like a red-letter red year. <laughs> and they and they got me out in the end. But. <laughs> okay. 1989. Roused on the isthmus dividing eastbound and westbound. Launched from the grill of an 86 cutlass, wicked knot throbbing on my crown. I remember the drivers swerving. I stood absolutely still. Ascension omitted. That frame's been clipped, along with the wire joining input and animal fear. It was the year I attempted to defect to the lion enclosure. Stuck neck deep in the bars, the pride stirred, rose on their haunches. Twenty-five years they've stopped from shade in my mind's eye. What a difference a foot makes, notes the near-death recidivist budge to the edge of the subway platform tracks nearer than once imagined when the ravening out of darkness speeds when the bad star advances in the channel one eye looks inside one away to step or lapse to the flesh no one is coming to slather my head and margarine flip me back to my keeper's hands 1989. A red letter
0: year. Thank you. We're starting to near the end. I'm wondering you mentioned you have an essay coming out in The Believer. Uh, When can we expect that?
2: You know, I don't have a pub date for that but I think this summer. So I'll definitely
0: send you a link. Yeah, I I love that magazine.
2: And in the meantime, uh, you guys feel free to check out uh, work. They have a Facebook cr- group called the Sacred Hoop Rewilders, um, and it might be worth checking out when they come through your area.
0: Yeah. It, and then as far as a larger, um, I guess the thesis is what you've been working on, is that going to be, does that...
2: Oh, right. Well, yeah, I'm looking for a publisher. It's called The Fix, and it'll be a book of poems. Awesome. Yeah,
0: and so what? What is next for you, it, after you graduate? Do you do you look for a job? Do you come come back home, or
2: I would love to go home, but I've take they gave me a job here for next year, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be in Iowa City at least one more year.
0: And what's the music scene like in Iowa City? I just met a uh,
1: musician from Iowa City like two nights ago. Oh
2: really?
3: Who was yeah. it? Yeah.
1: Uh, it's this guy called Funkmaster. He's like a one-man. He plays the drums, and he loops it. Then he plays like the bass, and he loops it. And most of his stuff's kind of reggae-ish. But I've never seen anybody huh. like this guy before. And he goes back awesome. and forth between Iowa City and like the Denver-Boulder scene here. But if you ever see him uh, or see him playing in Iowa City when he goes back there, I would catch it because it's pretty cool. Are you big into the yeah, music I'm scene great. there, though?
2: Well, you know, I've just been so totally consumed with this program that I really haven't been out much, but there is an awesome... Um, they have a literary and music festival here called Mission Creek every year that's pretty great, and they bring in really good acts. Every Everything from, like, Philip Glass and and The Get Down, Stay Down, and then Laurie Anderson was here, so it's, like, really
0: eclectic, and I'm glad. Well, that was 42 yeah. minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us.: Thanks for having me. You bet.
1: You've been listening to Lisa Wells on Syncbook radio a production of the More information about the work of Lisa Wells can be found at LisaWellsWriter.wordpress.com For more information about the sync book our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes please be sure and visit our website at 42 If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website. Consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. Sing the song, of whatever it is to be living in a particular skin.
4: stand by for an important message from the SyncBook Press Department of Treasury. The land of the Machine Elves was a happy land. These interdimensional beings enjoyed frolicking through the cosmos, creating odd coincidences and quirky rabbit holes. But recent reports from the Department of Psychedelic Agriculture show that trouble has come to the Machine Elves, upsetting the hidden order of the universe and denying us synchronicity, our most valued resource. For some unknown reason, machine elves have begun spontaneously combusting. The question is why. Our latest data suggests a lack of financial donations to the Olympia Sync Summit may be the cause. An amazing gathering of some of the brightest names in the synchronistic arts has been planned for August of 2014. A 42-day campaign was launched to raise funds for this event, but roughly two weeks in, it remains severely underfunded. However, there's still time for you to help and participate. You see, this is not just a fundraiser. It is also a ticket pre-sale. For $51, you get an all-access ticket for both days of the event. For $300, you get your two-day pass as well as overnight lodging. You'll also be staying with the presenters and attendees, a unique chance to spend personal time with fellow sync heads and your favorite artists. Don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime gathering. Donate now to save the Olympia Sync Summit. Or the world of Synchronicity may soon be gone.